Albert Einstein said that genius is making complex ideas simple, not making simple ideas complex. When it comes to solving the diabetes dilemma, we have made it impossibly complex, starting with the lie that diabetes is incurable and a lifelong sentence of management. Put simply, the truth is that diabetes type 2 is curable for many people. Then why isn't this happening? My guest today, Dr. Beverly Yates, outlines the simple steps to fix your most vexing health problem. She used to deliver babies, but now she delivers exceptional wellness for women. Welcome to her Brilliant Health Radio, where holistic women's health expert and board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Kieran Dunstan, shares revolutionary insight from leading experts on what you need to know today to treat the root cause of disease, heal, and create the radiant health you've been searching for. Lean in and get ready to experience the bountiful, blissful, and beautiful vitality that you deserve. Welcome back to another episode of Her Brilliant Health Revolution podcast with Dr. Kieran. So glad that you decided to take your precious time and join me today. I'm very honored by that. And I think you're going to absolutely love the topic and our guest today because it's something that affects every one of us in some way, right? So what am I talking about? Diabetes. If you don't have diabetes, you've got pre-diabetes or insulin resistance, so you're on that road to diabetes, or you know someone who has diabetes, a loved one often, and maybe even someone who's had consequences of diabetes, like they've had kidney failure or had to have an amputation or blindness or dementia or any of the many consequences of diabetes. So this is such an important topic that affects each one of us. I'm very excited to dive in uh, with my guest today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and then we'll get started. So Dr. Beverly Yates is an MIT graduate and a naturopathic doctor. She has over 27 years of experience helping people solve chronic health problems. She's an internationally recognized doctor for her work as a diabetes and heart disease expert. She's helped thousands of people get control of their blood sugar levels and transform their lifestyles to be more energetic, focused, and love the way they live. I like the sound of that. Welcome, Dr. Beverly Yates. Hey, thank you so much, Dr. Dunstan. I really appreciate being here today. I'm looking very much forward to our conversation about what is a growing problem. Oh my gosh, that's the real <laughs> epidemic, never yeah. mind COVID. Oh my yeah. gosh. Diabetes is an epidemic. To help us with some of the statistics <clears throat> on diabetes right now. Sure. In terms of who's affected. Mm -hmm. So here in the US, it's a runaway freight train of a problem, right? More than a third of the population, so over one in three, approaching one in two people in this country have diabetes. Mostly it's type 2 diabetes. Of all the people who have any kind of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, which usually is not necessarily insulin dependent, is 95% of the people who have diabetes. The shocking thing is that a lot of people are not diagnosed. They don't even know they have type 2 diabetes. A lot of people don't know they have prediabetes. In the case of di type 1 diabetes, people are usually quite aware. 
Yes. So, you know, we worry about the numbers with COVID. The numbers pale in comparison to people affected with diabetes. And, you know, I think it's why don't, why don't we consider it a national health emergency? The premature deaths and disability from diabetes are staggering. The economic costs are staggering. Why is this such a problem? Well, I'll tell you why it's such a problem. Culturally, here in the U.S., we have some dynamics that really shove people towards diabetes, right? In this current situation of a pandemic, has laid bare the issues that really force people one way or another. So it's interesting, right? You know, we know as doctors in our clinical work that there are certain diseases that have stigma attached to them. And unfortunately, diabetes is one of them, particularly for type 2 diabetes. People assume that someone, quote unquote, caused it. It's their own darn fault. And it's often not the case. I was just talking to someone the other day who was like, I didn't know and they gave me a list of things that they weren't aware of before that absolutely had caused them to wind up with type 2 diabetes. And I find that a lot of times people are judgmental and they assume that someone has partied their way to type 2 diabetes. That's often not the case. Severe chronic unrelenting stress, such as the situation that many people are experiencing in the midst of this pandemic, absolutely will cause type 2 diabetes, right? Your blood sugar raises in response to this unrelenting stress. And people may not know the physiology behind this, but it's really straightforward. High stress causes you to release lots of extra blood sugar. Why? Because your body feels like you're under threat, like you're running from a bear or a tiger. But there's no bear or tiger. Even worse, you aren't actually running. You aren't exercising to use and bring down that extra blood sugar, that glucose. So then your stress hormones release, cortisol, adrenaline, they do their dance. What this really means is you get pinned in high blood sugar lamps. You get on that blood sugar roller coaster and you don't get off. You may find you have cravings. You may find you have poor sleep. You know, there's lots of ways to get there without ever having the joy, let's say, of having day after day after day of, of pints and gallons of ice cream and cheesecake. And, you know, people just assume that folks party their way to this. I just want to bust that <laughs> wide open. Many people are not having a good time on their way to type 2 diabetes. That's just You know, true. that is a great point that I think is not made often enough. You don't hear people talking about that, but it's yeah. so true. I mean, even the stress of menopause, you know, I yeah. deal with menopausal and perimenopausal women is enough to cause that insulin resistance. And I yeah. see people, they eat a pristine diet with no sugar and very few carbs. And at midlife, then their blood sugar is just creeping up, creeping up, creeping up because of this phenomenon you're talking about. So I love, that's a quotable. People, not everyone partied their way to diabetes type two, right? That's right. <laughs> So how did you, you're an MIT graduate, former electrical engineer, and I know everybody listening is wondering, like I am, how in the world did you come to become a naturopathic doctor and help people with their chronic health problems? What a great question. You know, that's the number one question I get asked. They're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, I have always loved science and technology. I've always been really great at math, and those things are still true about me. When I went to MIT, it was already because uh, I was very much all in for science and tech. And in going through the rigor of that program and coming out with my bachelor's of science, having done the undergraduate thesis that is required, there's actual thesis you have to do. It's beyond a capstone project. And you defend it in front of the tenured faculty. I mean, <laughs> you know, talk about stress. <laughs> but you really go through a process. And when you're done, there's a few things that you can say is that one, for me, it's like confidence for a lifetime. Having gone through that has made me really confident that I can learn anything and master it. But with that, there's a certain culture and an atmosphere that I don't always agree with. And certainly tech has its issues, which are not a secret. 
especially as it affects women and people of color and just how that workplace dynamic works out. So I found that for myself, it was just really hard to be heard. My voice wasn't heard and I don't have any problems. I've never struggled with communicating. I realized I was not in an environment that was receptive to my talents. And so I was really, really deeply dissatisfied. Meanwhile, we had moved from Silicon Valley, which is where I started my career in Sunnyvale, California, to the Silicon Forest in the Pacific Northwest. I found out I'm quite sensitive to mold. And long story short, my husband, who at that time worked at Intel, he was working with a guy who had worked with a naturopathic physician there in Oregon who was really helpful to people who had allergies. So I first had gone to see an allergist MD, a medical doctor, and after a year, I wasn't getting better. I was taking the allergy shots, and I was like, what's in the shots? Nobody wanted to explain it. I was like, hey, it's my body. You're shooting me up. What's in that stuff? I can handle the big words. You know, <laughs> Tell me. And so that lack of communication, I wasn't a fan of either. So I went to see this naturopathic physician, and after three visits, I was dramatically better. My energy came back. The brain fog was gone. I was back to being my zesty, athletic, full of, full of joy person. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm really a results-oriented person. I, I, to some degree, I don't really care what you call it. I just want to know that it's, you're better, right? So with that, it really opened my mind that there might be another way to approach things from a holistic point of view and really to encompass what made sense for myself to get me back on track. And that round up being life-changing. So I left electro-engineering simply because it wasn't the right personality fit or culture fit for me. And I went from problem solving with things to helping people solve really chronic, often complicated health problems. And where I really made my mark, even in my training, going through internship and residency process was in heart disease, helping a man who had been on number one on the heart transplant list there in Oregon get off of that heart transplant list because his congestive heart failure situation was so greatly improved by tangible measures that LVEF, the left ventricular ejection fraction, improved dramatically with natural means. And he was just such an inspiration. What, what a joy to work with him, that man. He was such a gift to me as a person because he was really a very honest man, a very open person, and we were able to work together to help him get to his core issues, treat the root causes of his situation. And his body responded, he healed, and that gave me further affirmation and confidence that this could be a viable way to help others. We'll be right back after this short message from our sponsor. Hey there, it's your conscience calling. It's a new year. Just wondering where you are with your resolution. You remember the one to lose some weight and get in shape? You know, life would be a whole lot better if you upped your metabolism, lost a few pounds, had some energy, and could get in your skinny jeans again, right? But I know you don't want to count calories, and I don't want you to either. And working out at the gym is not your idea of fun, or mine. I know you hate the thought that you might fail at weight loss again, and I do too. And that's why, this time, I've set you up for the ultimate success by working with a doctor who lost 100 pounds at midlife herself by addressing all the hidden causes of weight gain no one's told you about. It's about so much more than diet and exercise. You'll see, Dr. Kieran will tell you all the secrets you need to know to lose 10 pounds and double your energy in the 28-day Jumpstart program. It addresses all the reasons that 90% of weight loss programs fail women at midlife. Yup, it was created by Dr. Kieran after she lost 100 pounds at midlife. She designed it to address the same issues that you're having. Only you don't know you're having them because no one told you. 
So yes, I heard what you want. And for sure, you totally deserve it. To live in a body that is healthy and vital and supports you in doing everything that you want to do. And to look good doing it while having more fun than you can imagine? I got you. And I know you don't want to pay a lot of money to try yet another program. So you'll love the special introductory offer of just $47 to join. Just $47? Girl, you know you spend that on things you can't even remember every single month. What have you got to lose? Nothing. Losing 10 pounds could just be the jumpstart you need to your next level of living. It's all ready for you. Just go to jumpstartyourmidlifemojo.com to get the details on this amazing program and sign up now. Then you can check off lose weight and feel great from your to-do list and get back to the things that matter most to you. I heard you and I've answered. Dr. Kieran's got your resolution covered with the Jumpstart program. I'll see you there. And we're back. What a great story. You know, we're so lucky to have you in medicine helping people and having that MIT brain on <laughs> our problems. So, yay. And tell us a little bit more about this man. You said he had heart disease. He was in heart failure. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things did you do with him to help his heart? Sure. So for him, I had prescribed a supplement regimen that included some botanical medicine, so some concentrates of herbs. Um, specific vitamins and minerals. I helped him change his nutrition because he was eating really poorly. He was a single dad with four kids and really struggling. I tried to do it in a way where his older kids, who at that point were in their mid-teens, could actually be helpful and not everybody wanting to go just get fast food and junk food, you know, so they could be part of the solution too. And it wound up being a family treatment plan in that way, right? Because if it's going to be nutrition and he's the dad, he has to be the leader. And the kids need to not undermine what he's doing. And so we were able to work all of that out. It was really a great moment to just understand the generational impacts of chronic illnesses. You know, heart disease is one example. Diabetes, for sure, is another example. Whether it's the genes, the genetics, is it the environment? Is it the epigenetics, right? These things are always in conversation and influence our health and what's expressed. Right. Okay. That's a great story. So let's talk a little bit about women at midlife and diabetes. So I love that you already started with, you know, doesn't mean we partied our, our way there. We're generally told, and I remember when I first learned, I heard it put this way, it was one of our professors at the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, Dr. Robert Roundtree. He teaches, Mm -hmm. I believe, in Colorado. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So the way he explained it is, you know, in mainstream medicine, we do a blood work at everybody's annual and Mm -hmm. glucose is a part of that. And generally the quote unquote normal values go to a hundred or slightly over a hundred. So it's considered normal if you have a fasting blood glucose of even up to a hundred or a little over. And basically we're given this blood work and we're told our blood work looks great, nothing to worry about. And then at some point when it starts getting maybe in the nineties, we might be told, oh, well you have a touch of sugar. We'll just check it again next year and watch it. And then it's checked and it's checked every year. And every year we're told, oh, you have a touch of sugar. We'll just watch it. Nothing to worry about. (laughs) And then after years of this, we go in, we get blood work. And then all of a sudden the doctor goes, oh, my God, now you have diabetes. 
Right. Now you get the team jersey. Now you get to stick your finger five times a day and stick yourself with a needle full of insulin. Now we're going to do something, and you're going to have this the rest of your life. Yeah. And this is what we believe. It's crazy. And we think it's a death sentence, and we call ourselves diabetic for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And, you know, the way he put that, I call it now, I call it the road to diabetes, right? Yeah. And it's a long road, but we can make the choice to turn around and go in the other direction. So let's talk about that. You know, the whole perception of diabetes is a forever till death do you part death sentence. Mm -hmm. Is that true? No, no, it's not. And to be specific, in the case of prediabetes and in type 2 diabetes, they can be with the right guidance and you taking action. It's about consistency, right? They can indeed be reversed. So type one diabetes, I will carve out. I've always said these should have yes. different names. It's crazy. They should. have the same name. It's confusing too- people. So to yeah. be clear, I'm not saying type one diabetes is reversible. Not saying that, everybody, you, you listen, <laughs> not saying that. I'm talking about pre-diabetes and type two diabetes. Those can indeed, you can stop the, the worsening of the problem and you can reverse it and make it better. Sometimes you can completely make it better and get people into normal glucose regulation and insulin sensitivity, and they can stay there. Do you know where the difficulty is? Because we're all human, right? And none of us is perfect. It's in habits. Because once that's broken, you're now more vulnerable, right? It, whether it's chronic stress got you to diabetes, like I said in the beginning, we don't all, everybody doesn't party their way to there. It could be stress, for sure. Adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, absolutely. It could be crappy sleep and midlife women and menopause, hello, and bad sleep. Dr. Dunstan, like that is like part of that journey, unfortunately, for way too many of us. And it tends to be more in the Western hemisphere and in particular in the U.S. and American culture, women you know, often have a very rough transition into menopause. That's not true around the world, as you well know. So I think that culturally, there's just a lot that we could do to just have a much easier transition in what is an absolutely normal life event called the end, the cessation of the menstrual flow, right? Why don't we celebrate its beginning and why don't we celebrate its end? Like it's a bookend event, it's gonna happen, right? We could acknowledge it, but instead we don't. And our blood sugars reflect that. Just like you said, people are told they have a touch of sugar and gradually that creep up, creep up, creep up until finally it meets the clinical guidelines Mm -hmm. for a diagnosis of type two diabetes. Why would you watch a train wreck in slow motion (laughs) and not do something about it? So true, right? Like if you're taking a train anywhere, a subway, something like that, a bus, you're driving your car, a truck, a pickup truck, a van, whatever, you don't wait for it to slowly, slowly lift into the next lane and then you have a crash. But we do that with health. And we as health consumers have got to be more savvy and push to make that different. You know, in some cases, people fight like hell just to get a referral to see a nutritionist or a dietitian or to get access to a gym or a trainer or to do stuff at home. The fact that so many people are exercising at home right now, I'm praying, hoping, it means that they're taking a more active stance and that it might be easier because they don't go anywhere, they don't have to park, you know, they don't have to find their special clothes to leave the house, they don't have to slog through you know, poor weather. Maybe more people are exercising at home. It's a fantasy I have, it might not be true. But you know, it, it would just make such a difference for that insulin sensitivity and that blood sugar regulation. And by the way, because it's those when those things are out of uh, balance, they all produce more inflammation. It also means it affects your heart. Because here's the deal. You know, you asked about some numbers and statistics. Heart disease is still the number one killer of everyone in the U.S., men and women. Heart disease dwarfs deaths from cancer, for instance. 
And on top of that, diabetes is the disease, type 2 diabetes, that is rapidly shooting up and very likely to become, at some point, I would guess in the next 10 to 15 years, number two. And it used to not even be in the top 10 of diseases in the U.S. It's recent within your and I's generation. Our generation is seeing this transformation. We're seeing type 2 diabetes show up in children age 10, 250 pounds. Crazy. So I think what's changed in that interim, honestly, has been our foods, how we eat and what we eat. The amount of snacks people think they should be snacking after the time of toddler and early childhood, um, on and on. Instead of back in the day, people had three meals a day. We can all look back in our family, family uh, generational photos, family photo albums, and you can see not only are people taller now, they're wider. A lot has shifted in the last, I'd say, two human generations, maybe three. So if you look at pictures from 50 to 70 years ago, it can be startling to see what's going on now. And so people are not trying to fail or trying to struggle or cause their own illness. We are often surrounded by poor quality food, lots of sketchy, not well-tested chemicals that have been released into the environment that are known to be obesogens or diabetogens or diabetesogens. I like that. That <laughs> mashup. That's a good one. You know, and so we all have the same air to breathe, the same water to drink. And if our food quality is compromised, you know, we eat the, if we eat animal-based foods, we're at the top of the food chain, we're eating whatever they're fed. And if they're fed poor quality food, nutrients, we're absolutely affected as being the top of the food chain. If we become vegans or vegetarians, that may be for some people a healthier way to eat. I will say this, it's important that vegetables are in that meal. I have seen people call themselves vegans and vegetarians, but actually what they're eating is carbs just nonstop, bread, and pasta, cereal, and they don't eat any actual vegetables, right? It's like kind of crazy. I'm like, if you're going to have a plant-based diet, then have plant-based foods in there and something more than just grains. You know, have the legumes and the beans, the things that burn a long time. Have those leafy greens. Oh my gosh, leafy greens are just such blood sugar heroes and heart health heroes. You get so much benefit from those leafy greens. You get glowing skin. That can help your brilliant life because you will have that outer beauty. You'll, you'll look good. Inner-wise, you'll feed your gut to have the inner beauty. You can't see it, but it's there. You can glow, glow on the outside, glow on the inside, right? And with that, you can have a friendlier cholesterol profile if that's a concern. You certainly can lower your blood sugar. I always tell my diabetic patients, think of leafy greens as your blood sugar sponge. It will really help to mute a big spike in your blood sugar. You'll feel more satisfied if you're struggling with food cravings, if you can't tell when you're full, if you have satiety, Leafy greens will really help you because they have so much in the way of fiber and they've got tons of those phytonutrients. They have so much goodness to give you along with water. You'll be better hydrated. It's to the point now I would tell my diabetic patients when you travel, either go to a store or order via Instacart or some other service a box of salad greens because now it's gotten easy. It's already pre-rinsed, ready to go. It could not be more convenient. It's usually 3 to $5 depending on where you live in the country for a box a wonderful salad, leafy greens. If you're in a hotel, you're not in a hotel. Maybe you're at a friend's house or you're at a family member's house and their nutritional quality doesn't match yours. Don't let that be the reason you get off track. Get those leafy greens and have them with every meal. And I'm a rebel. I say have them with breakfast. Yes, yes. <laughs> it makes the difference. Put them in a scramble, have them on the side, you know, but don't start the day with like, just like a bagel or some kind of sugary thing, you know? Bagels are simple carbs. I love bagels. 
and I don't start the day with them. And that's why. Too many simple carbs. I can't do it. I could do it at 20. I cannot do it now. <laughs> you know, you bring up so many great points. I'm just writing notes about things I want to ask you about. But as you were <laughs> describing, you know, the people who say they're vegan and vegetarian who only eat carbs, they're really carbitarians. Carbitarians. I'll say, you know, are you vegan or are you carbitarian? But I think some people are probably not familiar with the term, some terms you used, obesogen and diobesogen. Can you tell them what that means? Sure. And obesogen is a environmental factor, particularly usually a chemical, but not necessarily exclusively a chemical, that is known to cause people to put on weight. We are all mammals, and mammals are known when they are overwhelmed with toxins to store them in their fat. So if you are around something toxic, like, say, diesel fumes, right, and your body is not able to fully process it and excrete it, you know, like to say your liver has to identify it and then escort it out via your bile through your stool, right? So if you're a person who struggles with constipation, you may already have a problem. You might be recycling instead of eliminating those toxins. So if your body can't dump it and get it out, it's just going to store it in the fat. And that's true for all mammals. Humans are mammals. So an obesogen is anything that promotes and causes people to gain weight much more readily than they otherwise would. Okay. Diabesogen, same mm -hmm. thing, causes the blood sugar to go up. And sometimes that happens in response to certain chemicals and other environmental factors. It can also be, now that you've talked, you're, you're bringing this up, it can also be in response to certain foods, not just the glycemic index. The glycemic index is a point of conversation, mm -hmm. but there are people who have unusual blood sugar reactions to foods that are otherwise healthy. That's why testing and not guessing is a great idea for someone who's struggling with blood sugar. And so you mentioned testing, not guessing. Yes. What are people to do when they're going to their doctor and their doctor's just basically, your blood work's great, we'll see you next year, or you got a few things we're just gonna keep an eye on, we'll check it again next year. How is the average Joe or Jane supposed to be their own advocate and know what they need to get tested? Should they get, like I use a Keto Mojo tracker with my women in my group program, mm -hmm. should they just hear about that on this podcast and buy one and start checking their own sugar and see, I wanna see, am I good? What should they yeah. do? I think that that's a great place to start. So a Keto Mojo is a great way to go as a place to start. Here's what I tell my patients. When you see doctors of any kind and they aren't giving you the assessments or the information that you think makes sense for your health, particularly if you already know that you're at risk, like you have a touch of sugar. We're watching the train start to wreck, right? Here's what you can do. One thing you can do is self-advocacy that's usually pretty effective. If someone turns you down to do additional testing, so what they should be checking for is your fasting blood sugar, FBS. Mm -hmm. They should also check for your A1C. That's the long-term blood sugar control. You should get a full cholesterol panel, things like that. You want to know if you've got the friendly HDL cholesterols, et cetera. And then you say, hey, all right, you don't agree. You don't think I should have these additional tests or I shouldn't be assessed, let's say, every three months or every six months. Will you please write that down in my medical record? I want you to document that <laughs> I asked for it and you denied it. See, look at your reaction. I love it. I love it. I love right? it. They're not going to do it. They're going to say, okay, we'll do it. <laughs> They're not going to write that in your chart. And you're like, because you've called them out. Right? You've taken your power back. It's not being nasty or rude. You're there to make sure you get the service that should be delivered. This is what you are paying for. It's reasonable. And, you know, let's be let's be real. As doctors, as people who are nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians assistants, et cetera, whoever might be ordering labs, we all get tired. We don't always have an awesome day every day. Wouldn't that be great? Healthcare would be transformed if that were true. <laughs> we're human, right? right. Sometimes people are like, ah, no, nah, they get in a the groove. Like, it'll be okay. But you and I are talking about the train 
gradually wrecking. Right. So rather than watch that until it finally falls off the cliff, right, and now they are really starting to get sick. You know, their vision will be affected if it's blood sugar. Their kidneys, if they have any heart issues, they will absolutely accelerate. It won't just be a factor of two, it'll be a factor of 10. If they have weight problems, those will get worse. They have mood issues, those will get worse. I mean, the blood sugar thing is tied to so much. Brain function, higher risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. I mean, there's no good news to be had there, right? Peripheral neuropathy and pain. So it's worth that moment, perhaps of discomfort for those of you who aren't comfortable talking with your doctor as an equal or whoever is doing the testing and to just say, look, if you're not going to do it, I want it documented. And then I'd say, I'd find somebody else. It might be time for a second opinion. Don't wait. If you've got a family history, you may have a genetic vulnerability to begin with. Then there's epigenetic conversation of how stressful has your life been? What is your quality of sleep? And if you're a midlife woman recently or about to go through menopause, everything in your body is in conversation and it's shifting. Some of those shifts are going to be awesome and great. Some maybe not so good and you need to be more mindful and manage it. Hopefully it's a time in life where you can make more space for yourself and make sure you're back on top of your own to-do list. You get to be number one on that list. But sometimes that's more easily said than done. One of the most challenging years of my life was when my mom was so, so sick. And she it was about a year from the time when we found out that she had lung cancer to when she passed away. So hers was a really aggressive kind. And normally it's uh, two to three months from diagnosis. And she was with us almost a year. Needless to say, I pulled out the stops to try to help. And I'm an only child. And so it really made a difference. What a huge impact that transition had on me. I was so sorry to lose her. But I also know I had done all I could to help. And my mother had been so awesome, such a wonderful mother to me. I'm just blessed to have had such a great mom because that doesn't happen to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. And in that journey, it was just hard sometimes to find time. That's when I really got clear about how challenging life can be. You know, I had two kids, I'm married and a clinical practice, you know, plus some other things I was responsible for. And then my dear mother now is so sick. And so that's when I realized how important that self-care was. So I'm a former athlete, and so I, while I couldn't spend that, you know, 40 minutes to an hour in the gym, weight training, all the things I love to do, I did every day make sure I took at least four to five minutes. Sometimes that's all it was, too, honest to God. It was four to five minutes for myself. So if this helps anyone listening, just be intentional, and if that's what you've got, you take that four to five minutes daily for yourself. It's such a great self-affirming habit to have. If you want that brilliant life, especially as a woman, you know, we as women often get pulled multiple directions and are often expected to do a lot of things for a lot of people. And that's a tremendous amount of energy going out. You gotta have some coming back in. Keep that spirit, that soul, your your battery, if you will, topped up. <laughs> yes, you know, so many great points. And I think what you described with when what you went through with your mom on uh, her last year is so common. We get in that generation, we're in the sandwich with the kids and then the parents who are ailing. Yeah. And one particular patient of mine comes to mind who's in that situation. And really finding how can you just five minutes a day, can you take or for yourself or sometimes like with actually my mom, we actually recently made the 
decision to put her into a assisted living where they can actually have skilled care for her 24 7 365 it's the best for her better for us that's hard. So, my mother-in-law, yeah. my my husband mm-hmm. and his siblings went through that. That's a tough decision. It is a tough decision. But sometimes when your health is failing, you have to say, well, how good am I to anyone else? And it's that cliche about put your oxygen mask on <laughs> first before you put it on others. Right. So back to diabetes, because really this, I don't think that a lot of people are aware of the effect of diabetes on the brain and increasing mm-hmm. the risk of dementia. And people are actually calling Alzheimer's now diabetes type 3. Type 3 diabetes, I agree. In order to solve those end-of-life problems, if we look back 10, 20 years, what can we do better so we don't end up in a situation Mm -hmm. that needs a lot of care? So we talked about that diabetes is reversible. And I know for some people listening, it's the first time they've heard that. They're saying, what? What are you talking about? I never heard that. I never saw that. Why don't I see commercials on TV Mm -hmm. (laughs) about reverse your diabetes, get rid of it today. All I see are all kinds of medications about how I can improve my A1C. So talk about what would be involved for someone for reversing diabetes. Is it possible for everyone with type 2 diabetes or only some people? And what type of treatments would be involved with reversing diabetes? Okay, that's a great question. Let's unpack that one. So let's start with the hardest question, which is, is it possible for everyone? You know, from a global big picture perspective, it is possible for everyone. However, is it realistic for everyone? Honestly, I don't feel like our healthcare system supports people around health. I think what our healthcare system does today here in the U.S. specifically is it supports people around managing disease. That is such a different situation, right? So, for instance, when we're trying, when when a when a doctor or anybody else is telling you we're going to just watch your blood sugar levels, right? And they know the train is starting to wreck. The thing they ought to be doing is making sure you get nutritional counseling, you get support around exercise that works for your physical body. If you have difficulties with the big joints like knees, hips, shoulders, that you can get either physical therapy or surgery or chiropractic or acupuncture or all of them, whatever makes sense for you, so that you can move. I cannot tell you how often I have run into a situation where a woman has type 2 diabetes, midlife woman, perhaps a little older, She's had bad knees, bad hips, bad, bad some major body joint part for a long time. It has completely compromised her ability to move. Therefore, her weight has gone up. Why? Because she's in pain. And she can't get some you know, yo-yo practitioner to agree to whatever is the next step for her to be out of pain. And no, I'm not talking about people with pain pills, but rather things that can really resolve it. Right. So, you know, you don't have to have an opioid crisis, but just think about the mindset that went behind that. Oh, it's Mm -hmm. horrible. So if we're going to actually make a difference around blood sugar and really helping people and particularly for women and as we age, then we have to be sure that the care that we need is not being withheld. And that's why I advocate for people. I want you to write it in my medical record, dear doctor, why it is you won't agree to that knee joint replacement therapy or whatever it is. Because I'm, I've, that has really been, over the course of the last 10, 15 years, just an eye-opener to me. And I've heard this from women around the country, all regions, struggling with this. And I'm like, well, how is someone supposed to exercise when they're in that kind of pain? It's not So they become less and less mobile. Mm-hmm. And so everything about their blood sugar management, insulin resistance, everything about their heart health gets worse because they can't move. 
Right. They gain weight. I mean, you know, all the things you expect to go wrong, go wrong. Mental health goes down. Oh, it's just bad. So if we're thinking about type 3 diabetes and Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that, what we should be doing in our 40s, 50s, and 60s is doubling down on healthy nutritional habits, getting that regular exercise in to have that aerobic, I like to call it dynamic range, along with resistance, weight training. Keep those bones built up so you don't have problems with osteoporosis as you age because those bones respond to the demand. If you're in pain and not moving, you've got joint problems, your bones aren't going to be good either, right? Like you begin to see this as multi-systemic, you know, whole person effects. What a difference it can make. I've seen women's lives transformed once they can get things into balance, whether it's their nutrition, exercise, sleep, and stress. So the thing I haven't talked about is sleep. So should we open up that? Because for midlife women, sleep's a big deal. Absolutely. I call it the nectar of life. Let's do talk about the nectar of life. I love it. All right. (laughs) Sleep is the nectar of life. What a rich imagery. That evokes a lot. I think of like honeybees buzzing around, really wonderful, beautiful, scented flowers in full bloom. So for us as women, as we go through that menopausal transition and come out on the other side of that, sleep is often one of the things that gets hijacked. So if chronic stress hasn't wrecked you and hijacked your blood sugar, crappy sleep might. So the ways this plays out for most women is interesting. Guys usually have an easier time, even as they go through andropause, with going to sleep. Women typically have more likely, from what I've seen, more more of a problem with insomnia. They have a hard time with the onset of sleep. Then once you get asleep, being able to stay asleep and not have to wake in two, three times in the night to go to, say, pee. Right? So sometimes there's basic, simple things you can do. Make sure, like you probably noticed during this time, I've been sipping water, right? I'm one of these people who naturally doesn't drink. And if I don't pay attention to this, it will be seven o'clock tonight before I realize I've hardly had anything to drink. (laughs) This is how I deal with that, right? So some of us play catch up and, you know, literally at six, seven, eight o'clock at night, start to drink beverages that we should have had hours ago. And so we're up all night to pee. For some people, it could be a signal of blood sugar dysregulation starting to happen if they have that frequent call to urinate at night. Some people, it's a stress response. You know, all women have smaller bladders than guys, but it's not just about a small bladder, right? Because it's a proportional thing. So having that great quality sleep means that your blood sugar will not be hammered by poor sleep. If you have bad sleep, your blood sugar doesn't go as low as it should while you're asleep, which means your fasting blood sugars will be higher. Your average blood sugar will be higher. It also means when you wake up in the morning, you're more likely to be having food cravings. You're either going to want high-calorie food or high-carbohydrate food in response to that lack of sleep. You know, It could be a balance of some other things, other hormones like leptin and ghrelin. There's a lot going on there. The bottom line is this. We have to prioritize our sleep and get that good sleep in order to really have the quality of life we'd want as midlife women or women who might be a little bit older than that to really release that brilliance and shine it to the world, you have to have a foundation of sleep. All healing comes from sleep. So ladies, I'm telling you, you got to sleep. Gentlemen, if you have women in your life that sleep with you, support that sleep. Sleep is important. (laughs) Yes. So it is the nectar of life and you really have to get it right. It's one of the legs in our chair of health that we sit on our stool of health. And we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey there. It's me again, your conscience, just letting you know, I did hear you. The question is, did you hear me? Go to jumpstartyourmidlifemojo.com now to sign up for Dr. Kieran's next challenge starting soon. Pause this recording and go to the website now. 
We'll wait for you. Dr. Kieran's got you covered in achieving your resolutions this year. I'm always looking out for you. You're welcome. We're back. What about the role of nutritional supplements for helping to reverse diabetes? Nutritional supplements can be so, so helpful because these days the nutrients in our food, nutrient density is affected by the quality of soil that the food is grown in. So if you are eating all organic food, if you eat animal meats and let's say they've grass fed, if you don't eat animal meats, if you're a vegetarian or vegan, you know, you always want to have as much quality food as you possibly can, ideally organic, fresh, local, and in season. But even then, according to the studies that, I don't know if they're currently on the USDA website, it used to be on the USDA Department of Agriculture website, the nutrient density in the soil now is not what it was 70 years ago. So our great-grandparents ate much more nutrient-dense foods and therefore were probably satiated. They were satisfied with what they ate, ate smaller portions. If you have your in your family china or other heirlooms, plates, you'll, you've noticed those plates are smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're a lot smaller than what is in this, on sale in the store now, right? Doesn't that tell you something? There's a clue, right? Portion control. So that in mind, I think all of these things come together around what we eat. So we, I think, now benefit from supplements when it probably wouldn't have made sense 70 years ago. It absolutely mm-hmm. makes sense today. You can be targeted with your nutritional supplements so that they really can support your blood sugar or help you with heart health or with weight management, with sleep for sure, stress. There's lots of different formulations that are really, really helpful. And you try what works for you. You might not find it on the first pass. If someone has recommended it for you, they would have recommended it based on what they've seen clinically help others. But I do find sometimes with sleep, it requires some fine tuning. Sometimes people need a little bit more support and it might be earlier in the day. It isn't just necessarily bedtime. Yes, right. It's sleep is, you know, it's like sex doesn't start in the bed. It starts, it starts with doing the dishes. It's the same with sleep. <laughs> I call it sleep foreplay, right? You got, you got to romance your sleep. And it starts early in the day. Getting a good night's sleep starts in the morning, actually. What are some of your favorite nutrients to help with blood sugar? Some of my favorite nutrients are things like fenugreek. Fenugreek has been used internationally, and it has research data behind it. You can always go to the NIH website, the PubMed. And if you're a person who loves to get information for a high fact finder, go check out the scientific studies on fenugreek. That's one. Banaba is another. There are a number of nutrients, sometimes standalone or in combination, then can that can make a difference. Marnica, of course, now the names go out of my head, but That's yeah. okay. It's <laughs> not a test. Yeah, I just know, you know, there are various combination products. I usually like the combination products. They might yeah. have cinnamon is one of my favorites. Cinnamon. But they have banaba, like you mentioned, and chromium, which I love. Yeah. So usually a combination product. But I really love that you've highlighted that stress is just as much a culprit as eating. I know that stress, we've met, we've touched on heart disease. We didn't even get to talk about your book, Heart Health for Black Women, A Natural Approach to Healing and Preventing Heart Disease. But what are some common healthy habits that we can develop I know you've already covered so many, but are there additional ones for around heart health that you would offer? Um, additional ones, let's see, we talked about the leafy greens, because so that's just, that's going to help just about everything. I would say something I didn't say about taking time for yourself each day is the fact that it might help you avoid resentment. Resentment yeah. 
is one of those emotions that, as I like to say, so much of our health is not determined by what is quantifiable. And I love data. I absolutely do. That shouldn't be a surprise about me, right? I love data. Tests don't guess. But you know what? Resentment is not something that shows up on a lab test. <laughs> and it can play out in a lot of different ways. And so if you take time for yourself each day, it helps you to avoid resentment and promotes you feeling good about you because you're you. Yes, I'm just writing that down because it was so good. Resentment is not something that shows up on a lab test. That is a quotable. And, it, you know, I was listening to something this morning. I love Deepak Chopra, and he was talking about inflammatory emotions mm-hmm. and how, yes, we've got inflammatory chemicals in the body, right? Sure. We've got phthalates from plastics and heavy metals and right. all these things, but we also have inflammatory emotions. That's a good and way to- they contribute to the inflammation load in our body just as much as the chemicals. And how, you know, I loved, it's just right along the lines of what you're saying. Resentment is not something that's going to show up on a lab test. So it's not like just taking time for yourself is important because you're going to affect your cortisol, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's the data. It's that you're not going to be pissed off because <laughs> you're overgiving, And then you're not going to have that toxic, those inflammatory emotions going through, coursing through your body, causing inflammation. I know that's probably a big part of my story because I, back when I did regular OBGYN, I was so overworked Mm -hmm. and did at some point when I had no time for myself become resentful. And so then that resentment fed the inflammation and obesity that I had. So I think that your point is extremely well taken. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's, there's just so much about health and, and what affects health that is not found in any diagnostic imaging or lab tests. And diagnostic imaging has come a long way. I remember when Siemens tried to hire me back in the day as electrical engineer to work on MRIs. I was just out of school. And I love that diagnostic imaging can make it so that there's no more the term exploratory surgery, right? Surgeons can go in with precision and confidence to know what it's like, likely that they will find. And they can really be of help to people and have surgeries last longer and be a faster recovery because it's so much more accurate. That's wonderful. But then there's other things that, you know, we just can't quantify, but Mm -hmm. they do have effect. And if you are resentment, if you are angry, if you are not expressing it, if that's not healing, it can just lead to such a downward spiral. It'll drag everything else with it. All of your neurotransmitters, your hormones, all sorts of things will respond to that situation and the whole thing will be good, right? It's a problem. Yes. Yes. And I know that something you're passionate about is helping women with their self-care, which is something that as physicians, we have had to learn how to do. Yes. And I want to end the episode. I usually ask my guests to give the top three take action tips. We have covered so much territory. I know people's heads are spinning, but this is great information. But I'd love it if you could share top three take action tips for improving our self-care. What would you say those would be? Okay, top three take action tips for improving your self-care. Number one would be figure out how to make it easy to have healthy food choices. I'm a fan of preparation and planning and not nothing elaborate, but it could be as simple as the night before you already have your meals portioned out and ready in the fridge. Maybe it's a busy day and you'll be out. I know a lot of people are not traveling much during this pandemic moment. So if you're going to be at home, that's even simpler. If you need to leave during the day, maybe you really don't want to spend a lot of time out and about with strangers, right? For obvious reasons now for protection. So the day before, 
you know, that evening before, plan out your meals if you need to be out all day or how, whatever portion of the day you need to be out and just have it ready to go. Just make that easy. So it's a no-brainer and you aren't tempted to go and do something that doesn't make sense for your health. Okay. Uh, I think for a lot of people, that makes a difference. Okay. If you're going to go out to exercise, you, that could be as simple as, you know, having water ready to go, already packaged in the fridge in your to-go water bottle. Done. This way you don't feel like you need to stop somewhere and get a sweet drink or whatever, right? It yeah. makes it a lot, lot simpler. Okay. So is that number one? That's number one. Great. And then what would two and three be? Okay. So number two, in terms of taking time for yourself each day, look at how busy your day is and either schedule that time or the moment you are away from others and not needing to fulfill someone else's needs, it happens right then. Some people are better with a spontaneous format for that self-care moment. And some people need to literally have a reminders on their phone <laughs> to do it. Mm-hmm. Either one works. Either either one is a path of success. And that's what I'd say for number two. And okay. for number three, around prioritizing getting good sleep. Think back to your childhood. Chances are you had a regular bedtime. I invite adults to create good sleep <laughs> habits by having a very clear sleep routine. If you struggle with overeating or having late night snacking, as soon as you finish dinner, you're going to brush and floss your teeth. Powerful signal to your brain that you're done. (laughs) Then a few hours later, right? Hopefully there's time between dinner and going to bed because that's just better for you for a lot of reasons, better for your metabolism. Then you have your on-ramp to sleep. All screens, all devices, all gizmos, they're off. That blue light is no friend of sleep. You know, if you haven't already flossed and brushed those teeth, take care of your dental health. It's your PJs. If you take a shower or a bath at night, great. Whatever is relaxing, soothing, and go to sleep with positive things in your mind. Whether you are visualizing your upcoming day, maybe you're reading a fun book, actually a book, not from a Kindle, even though that's a low amount of blue light, but still. But you don't want it from a computer or a laptop, a, a tablet, et cetera, because that blue light can affect your sleep, right? So an actual physical book, maybe a newspaper, something that's not emitting light back at you. And yeah. be ready to go to sleep. Maybe you end the day on meditation. You end the day on prayer. You end the day on gratitude. Whatever that might be for you, make that part of your sleep routine. Think back to your childhood. And if you had a safe, calm childhood, borrow that. If you had a chaotic, difficult childhood, then this is what should have happened. You have a chance to reclaim that sleep moment. But make it work for you. Oh, I love that. I like a bedtime story. And you can go on YouTube and have <laughs> someone read you a bedtime story. So. Yeah. And all you got to do is listen to it, right? You don't even need to be looking at the screen. Done. You don't, (laughs) right? So I love that. Thank you, Dr. Beverly. I know that you have a free download of the blueprint for using nutrition to thrive with diabetes. We will have the link in the show notes. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that? Sure. I'm glad to do it. The blueprint was set up to give people an idea, a framework of how to use nutrition in order to thrive with diabetes. Sometimes people have in their mindset around diabetes that they're doomed, that there's nothing they can do, and it's just going to get worse. They may not have seen others be successful, never mind reverse type 2 diabetes. So in the blueprint, I give people the outline for what it is that will be helpful to them and that is actionable. Things that you can do to help yourself right now get a hold of that blood sugar situation so it doesn't continue to worsen. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Beverly, for that free report, that resource, which I'm going to encourage everyone listening to go and download. Thank you for sharing the wisdom that you have shared. It's just so much wonderful information. And thank you for the path that led you to doing exactly what you're doing right now. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate being able to get the good word out. I wish everyone success on their healing journey. And please take Dr. Dunstan up on her invitation for you to have your brilliant life. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully you have learned something today that's going to impact your life in a positive way. You heard a lot today. Just pick one thing and take one action. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, but Journey of a Thousand Steps begins with the first one. So just take one today, pick one thing and do that one thing. And as you do that each day, watch how your life and your health change and unfold for the better. Thanks so much for joining me and I will talk with you next week. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media and send it to someone who would benefit from it. If you love the show and really want to support it, please go to iTunes, write a review and subscribe. This helps other women find us so that they too can heal and enjoy brilliant health. I've got a gift for you. If you take a screenshot of your review, post it on your social media and tag me, I'll send you a special surprise right to your inbox. Thank you so much for joining me. And remember, healing and getting optimally healthy isn't magic, it's science.